European Theatre Podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 69, Germanic Renaissance Theatre. I think it's true to say that we think of the Renaissance and we think of Italy. Freshly carved statues sitting in Roman piazzas, fabulous art crowding the walls of the Doge's Palace in Venice, the Medici decorating Florence until it was fit to bursting, that kind of thing. The regeneration of theatre after the centuries of the medieval period certainly began there, but it became a European-wide phenomenon, just like the rest of the Renaissance. As artistic thinking, philosophy and science progressed, it changed in each region as it met different languages, local sensibilities, worldviews and, most particularly, religion. Over the last few episodes I've spent a long time in Italy because that made most sense from a chronological point of view, but now it's time to move on and survey the theatrical renaissance from other parts of the European continent. And our first stop is Germany, or as I should more correctly say, the Germanic states. At this time, there was no single unified country in the German-speaking parts of Europe. Germanic Northern Europe was the epicentre of the Reformation, with the cleric Martin Luther usually being given the credit for starting the process by nailing 95 points disputing the effectiveness of religious indulgences to a church door in Wittenberg in 1517. The situation was, of course, more complex than that, as Martin Luther was standing on the work done by many protesting clerics and other intellectuals before him. Nevertheless, for a shorthand, his actions mark the beginning of Protestantism. No chance of theatre thriving in that orbit then. Well, not quite. We have to remember Luther was a serious and scholarly man who keenly felt the injustices he saw in the established church, but he was not a Puritan. He had a lifelong love of music and had been the recipient of an extensive musical education. In his younger days as a monk, he'd sung and played the lute. He wrote sacred songs, and after taking up a clerical teaching position and when he became a husband and father, he also encouraged musical performance within his students and his family. It's partly through his incorporation of music in the schoolroom that there remained a close and sustained link between education, religion and music. Luther's approach to music was driven from the conviction that music was a beautiful and unique creation of the divine, with the ability to speak to mankind in a way that allowed man to anticipate their future life in heaven. Music's true and unique task, he said, was to both bring people joy and to praise God. Theatre, of course, is not just music, and the inherent distrust of mimetic art was still present. But Luther did not outright object to the theatre, and his followers generally took the same view. Theatre was fine, as long as it was used in the praise of God, and for blasting all of those hypocritical clerics and princes of the Catholic Church who continued their foul and unchristian ways. I'm putting words into his mouth, but you get the idea. Unfortunately, plays that praise the holy sanctity of one view and damn the other without hope of redemption do not tend to make for good drama. Under this religious influence, what was produced was something like morality plays with added vitriol. One-dimensional characters that were personifications of a particular belief argued with devils from the opposing view, who had no decent arguments to counter with or hope of salvation. Such plays lacked the humour and, not insignificantly, the funding that at least allowed the medieval cycle play to make their devils entertaining. And none of this was helped when Luther insisted that drama should be presented in Latin, and his fellow clerics promoted that message with enthusiasm, being of the same academic bent that he was. Once again, it was Plautus and Terence for comedy and Seneca for tragedy that were thoroughly approved because they assisted the Latin students in their studies. 
Familiarity, if not eloquence in Latin, was still a highly prized asset for the clerical community. For a time, theatre that went anywhere beyond comic and acrobatic entertainments was rooted in the seminaries and other educational establishments where plays were read and discussed, and sometimes performed by amateurs, and occasionally augmented with prologues to emphasise the religious and the educational aspects that could be put onto them. Out in the secular world, the local rulers, the dukes, the electors, the princes of various stature, were kept abreast with the new trends concerned more with artistic merit by travelling players from Italy, France and England. The Italians, and then the French, brought their comedies, while the English, because of the more serious language barrier, relied on mime and physical performance. Later in the period, the English players did have some influence, more of which later, but compared to the court experience in neighbouring countries, the Germanic exposure to theatre at that level was relatively small. But plays in Latin were accessible to the educated at court. One example of this type is Stilfo, written in 1480 by Jacob Wimpeling. The piece is a dialogue between two former university students. One wasted his studying time and mastered neither Latin nor the humanities. He'd failed to gain the high position in the papal curia that he believed was his for the taking. The other student was diligent and thoughtful about his studies, and despite his low beginnings he was the son of a peasant, he has risen to become a bishop. The message is clear and the action static. It's more a sermon than a play, but it inspired Heinrich Babel to write a rather better piece entitled, in Latin, A Comedy of the Best Study for Young People. In his play, Babel, another humanist university professor, took the same two characters back to their university days, where the peasant student is still rough around the edges, and in fact a mirror of the author who was himself of poor farming stock. The play provides advice on the subjects students should study, and how to become eloquent in Latin. There are a few attempts at jokes by the students, but the play is only a comedy in the sense that it isn't a tragedy. Neither play is going to get a revival, but they illustrate the close relationship of theatre with the educational system in Northern Europe at the time. Religious theology featured large in Thomas Nagorgas' 1538 play, Pamachius. It's a piece created for appreciation by intellectuals that attempts to cover the sweep of a thousand years of church history, but does so using highly theatrical scenes that culminate in recent events. Bishop Parmachius was a 4th century bishop who in the play is portrayed as the Antichrist. He ends up in hell, where the devil presents him with a papal tiara. As Satan and his devils celebrate their victory over man, word comes that Luther has nailed his disputations to the church in Wittenberg, which puts their celebration in doubt. In an ambiguous ending, Satan declares that he will continue the fight until the last day. The play was dedicated to Thomas Cramner, Archbishop of Canterbury and the leading light of the English Reformation, also advisor to Henry VIII, Edward VI and, for a short time, to Queen Mary. He had visited the German regions and spent time with the leading reformers there, where he found many like minds and inspirational ones too, and amongst whom he was respected. Nagorgius called him the highest anti-papist of the English church, and no doubt approved when Cramner arranged for his play to be performed at Canterbury and then at Christ's College, Cambridge, in 1545. For the common man, players provided entertainment in the juggling acrobatic line and short comic plays such as had been seen throughout the medieval period, particularly for the Shrove Tuesday Carnival. 
From the early Renaissance, one character from this type of playlet has survived. Hanswurst, literally translates as Hans Sausage, was popular in the 16th and 17th centuries. He's an enterprising but foolish character who can be cunning but never quite grasps the situation properly and ends up making a fool of himself every time. He is first mentioned in a play called The Ship of Fools from 1494, written by Sebastian Brandt. He was a humanist and satirist who was born in Strasbourg to an innkeeper and went to study law at the University of Basel. From there he wrote the poetry and works of civil and canon law that he is most remembered for. Ship of Fools is a collection of 112 satires written in German verse, and an adaptation of an allegory written down first by Plato in The Republic. The allegory tells of a shipowner, who is a big, commanding man, but rather deaf and myotic and with limited skill as a working sailor. Consequently, his crew are always arguing between themselves about who should really be in charge. Each one sees himself in the role of captain, although none of them are truly capable of taking the lead. In fact, they recognise that a captain's skills can't be taught simply, but still they constantly harangue the shipowner about handing over the tiller to them. Fights break out in the ensuing arguments, and sailors are killed and thrown overboard. Those who remain manage to incapacitate the shipowner and take control. They help themselves to the cargo, they feast and drink until they lose track of where they're going and what they're doing, and steer the ship almost aimlessly on the sea. When someone who vaguely knows what they're doing manages to take control, the others get jealous and treat him contemptuously, showing they have no understanding of the breadth of the knowledge that a captain has to carry with him to undertake a safe journey. Plato's intention is to show the problems of governance with a political system that isn't based on expert knowledge. The idea was popular at the time, given the distaste at leadership for the church and some secular rulers, and in Brandt's version, the lambasting of the vices and weaknesses of the time is relentless. By putting criticisms into the mouths of the foolish sailors, Brandt was calling on the tradition of the court fool being able to fearlessly speak his mind to those in power which was an idea that Luther himself continued to use to legitimise his criticisms of the church. Brandt's play was very popular, as evidenced by the 13 editions published with woodcuts by 1521, seven of which were pirated versions. As a popular character, Hanswurst became a shorthand for a mocking insult. Luther wrote a pamphlet in 1541 criticising Henry, Duke of Brunswick, the title of which was Against Hanswurst. And early in the following century, the character was popularised in theatre by performances that emphasised his sexual and scatological jokes, until he became a symbol of all that was low and coarse in German theatre. To jump ahead a bit, by 1730 there were attempts to remove the character and raise the quality of German comedy. Scholar Johann Gottsched and actress-director Frederica Neuber produced a public banishing of Hans Wurst in 1730, which, although it did not have general public support at the time, is now seen as a point when German theatre began to move to a more middle-class literary form. The character popped up again in the 18th century as a puppet character, but then more or less disappears from popular culture today. An Italian influence can strongly be detected in Students by Christoph Stummel. This was a translation and adaptation of Ariosto's play of the same name that was unfinished when he died in 1533, but was completed by his brother. While still a student in Frankfurt and der Oder in 1545, Stummel took the original play and enhanced it with his knowledge of Terence, which had been imparted from a tutor he had who was a recognised expert on the Roman writer at the time. 
Stummel had apparently learnt his lessons well, and after two performances in Württemberg, he shot to fame within the educational circles, with his work being praised for its elegant dialogue, wide-ranging references to Greek mythology and theatre, and his masterly recreation of exchanges that could have come, it was said, from Plautus or Terence. The play follows the domestic adventures of a group of students as they find their way through the ups and downs of university life, with varying degrees of success, until their wealthy fathers arrive, like a collective domestic deus ex machina, to bail them out financially and arrange marriages hastily. Certainly a comedy, but still moralistic, Protestant, and aimed at the scholarly class who would appreciate the elegant Latin and the classical references. For all of the playwrights working in Latin at the time, Johannes Reuchlin was probably the most versatile. Born in 1455, he became one of the greatest scholars of Greek and Hebrew, more or less by accident. He was the son of a Dominican friar and attended school from an early age. After an unsuccessful time at university, he was taken into the household of Charles I, Margrave of Baden, on the basis of his fine singing voice and reputation as a Latinist. He was chosen to accompany the Margrave's son to the University of Paris, where he had the opportunity to study Greek, and he flourished. Falling in with the young humanists in the French capital, he followed their leading lights to Basel University, where he took a master's degree. He lectured in Latin and Greek, reportedly being able to explain Aristotle in Greek to students, and travelled extensively through Europe. He wrote plays that adapted Roman comedy, but also farces that owed much to French influence. Heno, written in 1497, was an update on the French medieval secular comedy The Farce of the Worthy Master Pierre Petelin. I mentioned this piece when discussing the medieval secular theatre in episode 60. It dates from about 30 years prior to Reuchlin's version. As a reminder, the story concerns a dishonest lawyer who feigns madness to avoid making a due payment to a merchant. He is then engaged to represent a shepherd accused of stealing his neighbour's sheep. His advice to the accused is simply to answer bah, like a sheep, to every question the judge puts to him, and thereby proving that his years of sheep tending have fuddled his brain. The ploy works and the man is acquitted. But when the solicitor comes to collect his fee, the shepherd will only reply as he did to the judge, and the solicitor walks away empty-handed. It's a short play, telling a neat joke where the unscrupulous get their just rewards and the simple shepherd gets the better of the supposedly clever man. Again, echoes down the centuries from Menander and Plautus. But in this German version, we have the play that is generally considered to be the first German light comedy. In Latin, serious didactic religious plays dominated, but as Heno shows, they didn't have it all their own way. And what of serious plays in German? They do exist, but lack the cohesion that would make them into a force in the development of theatre. Most were probably composed in a response to travelling players performing in English and Italian. English players performed melodrama and secular historic plays. The Italians performed comedy, and local poets imitated both in the vernacular. Biblical stories in new versions remained popular, often being reworked with slightly different emphasis on the moral message of the story by several different playwrights at about the same time. The growing reliance on biblical stories through the middle of the 16th century is evident and probably due to the increasingly intolerant times. With a biblical subject, there was a good chance that your play could pass the censor and get a performance even if subtle messaging that might be seen as subversive was included. A particularly popular story for dramatisation was that of the bathing Susanna, taken from the book of Daniel. 
The story concerns the innocent Susanna who is spied on by two elders while taking a bath. They lust for her, and when she refuses their advances, they accuse her of adultery with a young man. At her trial, Daniel leaps to her defence and disproves the inconsistent stories that the elders tell. At the time, the story was also a favourite for artists, but it's interesting that the playwright scholars in the Germanic region should also choose to represent it. The story wasn't included in the Protestant Bible, being considered apocryphal, so why did it remain popular? In the space of 20 years, there were at least six versions produced by playwrights written in German. The triumph of the innocent woman over the elders of the old church was probably part of the appeal, but did the voyeuristic element of the story also play a part in its popularity as a subject, just as it did in the art world? A significant contribution to German language drama came surprisingly from Heinrich Julius Braunschweig, who was Duke of Brunswick from 1589. He was a Protestant and married to a Danish princess. At the court in Copenhagen he had seen English players and invited a troupe to his family home in 1592. They were led by Thomas Sackville, who was a notable clown and actor at the time. The troupe stayed at court for five years, providing entertainments and performing the plays that the Duke took to writing. The Duke's intention was to moralise and educate his court into better behaviours. He took ideas and characters from Plautus and Terence and crafted comic plots that put characters like the braggart soldier into situations where they were ridiculed for their failings and overbearing characteristics. Scenes set at court illustrate how not to behave and how to read the subtle social signals of a situation. It's the type of messaging that asks the observers to look at their own habits and motivations, but was also comic and therefore popular, despite being rather unoriginal. Much, I suspect, depended on the skills of the actors here to make up for quite a lot that is poor in the writing. It is likely that English troops also played a part in influencing Jakob Ayer. He spent his life in his hometown of Nuremberg from about 1550 to 1648. He wrote over 100 plays, of which about two-thirds survive. Most are carnival plays, short farces and comedies, but later in life it's thought that he saw the plays of Shakespeare and other English dramatists presented by the travelling English players and learned from them about how to make his plays more poetic and dramatic. The Tempest seems to have been a particular inspiration. Ayer's play Commedia von der Schönen Sedia, which roughly translates to The Comedy of the Beautiful Land, isn't a copy of The Tempest, but features conflicts between the English and Scottish kings, an exotic Moor character, and a journey to a strange land on the advice of a magician. It is in the creation of the foreign mystical land and its poetic form that the similarities with The Tempest are detected. Although Ayer could not have seen The Tempest in print, Perhaps a viewing, or perhaps several viewings, of the play in performance were enough to inspire his own attempt, although it comes nowhere as close to the success of Shakespeare's play. Ayer was really the last in the line of playwrights that worked mostly with the carnival comedy, but also one of the first to write primarily in German, which was a trend that continued into the 17th century when almost all plays were presented in German. In the later part of the 16th century, perhaps the most influential playwright was Nicodemus Frischlin. He had a turbulent life that had started in Württemberg in 1545 as the son of a Lutheran preacher and then as a student of religion. He went through several monastic schools where he was exposed to Terence and Plautus, but also Aristotle, Cicero and Ovid. 
He diverted from the clerical route and attended university, obtaining a master's degree at the early age of 20, and was ready for a life as a humanist academic. As a professor at Tübingen University, he lectured on poetry and classical antiquity, Caesar's Gallic Wars being a particular favourite of his, turning away from theology almost completely. As his star rose, he gained enemies in the academic world, but he prospered through a socially advantageous marriage. He wrote poetry that he dedicated to the local duke and then to Emperor Maximilian II, which was well received, so at the age of 30 he was appointed poet laureate to Emperor Rudolf II. Frischlin wrote in different genres, court comedy, tragedy and religious plays, which, despite some of the difficulties he found himself in, meant that he was appreciated by different parts of society and became well known in the area. His changes of subject and style were driven by necessity as a writer for hire. He worked to the requests of his latest sponsor, be that the emperor, the duke, the university, the guild, the church or a monastery. He was prolific, turning out at least a play a year and often more, in addition to his academic and poetic works. His fall from grace in academic circles came with the delivery of a seemingly innocuous lecture on Virgil's pastoral verses, where he supported the poet's view that living a life in harmony with nature and working the soil was the greatest achievement man could hope for. In the city world of academics, merchants, bankers and rulers, this was close to heresy, and his enemies made much of it. As a university professor, he was a public servant and on the state payroll, so it was relatively easy for those with a grudge against his success to spin and exaggerate his views, which were always expressed more freely than was advisable, and to make his life difficult. In the end, he was forced to leave the duchy under the protection of the duke. He spent two years as a schoolmaster and then travelled through Italy until he felt it was safe to return, but found that his old job had been given to a rival, so he travelled to the free city of Strasbourg, where he could feel relatively safe. From there, in 1584, he published Latin plays he had written while in exile, and then he was recalled to Württemberg to contribute to the celebrations for the Duke's second marriage. His comedy, Julius Redivius, was performed there. This was an adaptation of a play he had written some years earlier. There are records of a performance at the University in Tübingen, and we have to wonder at the suitability of his choice. In the play, Caesar and Cicero return from death and cast their eyes over the state of the modern world. Caesar from the point of view of a military genius, Cicero from the broader experience of life and using all of his ability as a great orator. The pair meet two German humanists and discuss the state of the world. Life in the Germanic states is generally shown to be better than that lived in antiquity. But there are some criticisms of the ducal court where, they say, too much time is wasted on frivolities and too much alcohol drunk. Conveniently, two comic foreigners then turn up, a lecherous Italian and an unscrupulous French merchant, who then get the blame for these shortcomings. Cicero bemoans their terrible Latin and can't believe the Roman legacy has become so bastardised. He is able to retain his eloquence even when throwing them off stage and out of the ducal realm. With the foreigners expelled, the modern characters then extol the learned nature of Germans, pointing out that many great scholars that the region has produced. The Germans are even credited with the invention of gunpowder and the printing press. He was building on common misconceptions about the history of those two items at the time, and it's not wholly untrue in the case of the printing, but this is all to prove the point how wrong Caesar was to call the Germanic tribes barbarians.
Cicero and Caesar close the play by returning to the underworld and being generally impressed by what they have seen of the progress in the world. So, a rather serious and learned piece for a wedding. There are comic characters and moments, but any comedy is very limited. Presumably, Frischlin thought or knew that the Duke would appreciate the serious intent of the play, and, at a base level, it is a praise piece for the Duke and the status quo. We don't have an account of the play apart from Frischlin's own, so we have to take his word for it that it was the success he claims. The play was bookended with pageants for which he had to ask the Duke for extra funding, so it's safe to say that it was at least a sight to behold. The play was produced again several times in the following years and found its way onto the university syllabus for a while. But despite the apparent success of this play, Frischlin was unable to find a route back to the top flight of academia. He had gained a reputation as a difficult character who spoke his mind too freely. He was forced into a succession of teaching jobs as he travelled around and found himself unable to get money owing to him released. His attempts to set up a printing shop were thwarted because of fears of what he might allow to be printed. His loud protests finally annoyed the Duke enough to have him imprisoned for his countless insults to the authorities. He was held in a castle prison but tried to escape and fell to his death trying to climb a high wall. Apart from Frischlin's own account of the wedding production, we don't have many pointers of how plays were presented, but a single document from 1581 gives some insight. From an amateur student production in Cologne, some notes on staging and props have survived. The play in question was shown in honour of the patron saint of the school, Laurentius, who was a Roman deacon martyred in the Valerian persecutions in 258 CE. The notes include a sketch of the set that show the play being presented in a schoolyard and incorporating two trees as part of the set. The props include several unattached doors that could be moved to different positions to denote different locations, a throne, an obelisk and a barred prison. Costumes include a long tunic and yellow cloak for the saint and a black mantle with a headdress for Faustia, the emperor's daughter. For other characters, costumes were similar and more emblematic. A cloth over the shoulder represents the toga, a long beard for an old man, a helmet with a plume of feathers for a nobleman, for example. The notes are slight, but they give the impression of a style that picks aspects from both Roman and medieval drama to make something that is practical for the limited budgets and other constraints that non-professional productions have to suffer. A manual on acting by Jodocus Willich gives us a similar limited insight into the acting style used for the Latin dramas. He was a physician and writer who worked in the first half of the 16th century and the acting manual was put together from lectures that he gave on the subject in Basel and Frankfurt. He described a very physical performance with detail of how emotion should be conveyed with a thought to every part of the body, the angle at which to hold the head, how to furrow a brow, twitch the lips, glance sideways, how to hold the knees and twist the hands in the right movement. If this is a representation of what was being performed, then it was very stylized, with the emphasis on representation rather than naturalism. But we do not have a detailed description of actual performances to know if this was just his idea of what the ideal performance should be, or what the reality of a performance in a school hall, courtyard of an inn, public square or guild hall actually was. And as a final point, we have to acknowledge that it's possible that the Germanic states were much more prolific than they appear to be from the historical record of plays. 
There are many references to scholars of one flavour or another that are also mentioned in contemporary accounts as being playwrights, but we have no record of the works they produced. The most likely reason for this is the wars of religion that consumed the Holy Roman Empire for 30 years from 1618 to 1648. In terms of disruption to society, it was the most serious event since the Black Death struck three centuries earlier. Estimates of the dead from fighting and the effects of the conflict range from 4.5 to 8 million people. The population in some areas was reduced by as much as 50% due to the effects of displacement and famine through successive lost growing seasons as the conflict moved backwards and forwards across the continent. The conflict was sparked by the Reformation and is characterised as a fight between Catholic and Lutheran states, but that oversimplifies matters, and the wider conflict was a political one with the Habsburgs and the Bourbons fighting for dominance in Europe. It's a complex story, but for our purposes it had essentially two devastating effects on theatre. As already mentioned, it led to the destruction of plays in printed and manuscript form. As a religious war, the destruction of libraries containing works for the opposing side were targeted and many plays were destroyed even if they were only collateral damage alongside the religious works. The conflict itself was so fierce and relentless that in itself it led to an apparent artistic sterility while it raged. For 30 years, theatrical endeavour was seriously curtailed when this part of the continent tore itself apart. So we can see a lot of similarities with the Italian Renaissance theatre, through the grounding in Plautus and Terence, the influence of humanism and the retention of Latin for performance. The German theatre of the time seemed less inclined to comedy and features far less satire than the Italian theatre and was still producing plays for carnival and spiritual education that were still medieval in tone. While undertaking this review, I found little sense of anything that was uniquely Germanic or striking in the new period which was a feeling that was only enhanced when we hear of English players presenting foreign works that were then copied and translated for the German audience. Exciting things were happening in the theatre, but the Germanic states were not the main arena. Next time, we continue travelling through Europe and move to France. With a much closer relationship to Italy, both geographically and culturally, did Renaissance theatre spread quickly into France? We will look at the spread of the Renaissance North and West and see to what extent the French were able to forge any new drama from the Italian beginnings. In the meantime, on the Patreon audio feed there's a new episode looking at the Elizabethan acting troops who performed at the Rose Theatre as part of the Henslow's Diary series. It'll be a while yet before we get to the Elizabethan Theatre on the main podcast, so if you're itching to hear about that period, the Patreon offering is a great way to get a taste of what's to come. You can hear that and much more if you sign up for a small monthly fee at www.patreon.com slash thoetp. Alternatively, you can join us on the Facebook group or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or even do all of those things. Thanks again for your continued support. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.